102.5 FM, KXSFLP San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. We all could use more laughter in our lives to relieve all the tension around us, feel a sense of connection with others, and dig more into our humanity, less into our ego. How can we create more laughter in our lives? Today I'm talking with Daya Lakshi Manera Yaman, an award-winning comedian, performance artist, and storyteller. She will share her journey as a comedian and how we can flex our funny bone. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Daya. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your journey as a comedian. Well, uh, in the last couple of years, it's hard to call myself a comedian because I've been sitting down in front of the Zoom. So I would say post-Omicron, I'm going back to being a comedian. Mm, We can all relate to that. Absolutely. You're more than a comedian, though, right? I do a few things. Thank you for asking. Uh, Even if I was only doing comedy, that's a lot. So I want to challenge that assumption more than a comedian, because if people just did comedy, that is pretty amazing, because it's hard to do. But I do other things. Uh, I'm a storyteller. I host The Moth. I'm a TV writer. And I also do uh, on-camera work. I've hosted a game show, uh, for example. How do you come up with your jokes? How much of it is based on your life? That is an industry secret, because even if I were to tell people, nobody ever believes you. Like, you get off stage and people go, oh, uh, was that a joke about your growing up in Alabama? I go, why would I make something like that up? Of course it's real. You can Google me. I grew up in Alabama from 5th through 12th grade. But even when I tell true stories, audiences don't believe. They think that comedians just make up personal details of their life. Well, it does sound more dramatic when comedians tell them. When dramatic people tell stories about their life, people are like, oh, my gosh, this person had cancer and then their dog died. How awful. But when you say it as a joke, people think you're just making it all up. And I'm like, we're not that talented. We, we t- sometimes tell true stories that are funny. <laughs> so you pull most of your jokes from experiences throughout your life and sounds like from the news or from social commentary that you're reading? What's your best source? There's no one source. Comedy is a diverse art form, and it really depends. I mean, uh, people outside of comedy often want to know the formula. Stephen King once was asked, where do you get your ideas or where do you get your material? And he's like, heck if I know. I I have no idea how these things pop into my head. So there's less of the deliberate aspect of it than one would think. It's that we feel like we have something to say out loud on stage to people and they need to listen to it, which is a very weird mindset to begin with. It's hard to explain. But you must have a style, right? Some people like to be shocking. Other people like to be political. Do you have a particular genre that you would say describes your style or the way you put together your storytelling? You came uh, to one of my shows. So I would say, what do you think is my style? What do you think is the style? I do think you have definitely a bit more social commentary 
it's a very intelligent style for sure. Thank you. See, I like when you said it as opposed to my saying, I do intelligent comedy. That that sounds like a jerk move. No one should say that about <laughs> their own work. So thank you for saying that. I like to talk about things that I'm interested in. And I'm really not that interested in pee and poo jokes. I mean, I'm not saying that those can't be funny. That's just not what I'm interested in. I'd rather talk about other things that intrigue me, that excite me. Good comedy doesn't have to be uh, personal. There's some like amazing observational comics out there. It doesn't have to be sociopolitical. There's some physical comedians out there who make me laugh. I'm still a, a kind of person who, who laughs when some cartoon character falls down. I appreciate all kinds of comedy. But for me, I do like to talk about the world around me, what's happening in my life, things that I think about, articles that I've read, things that are... Uh, it, it, interesting to me to ask questions about, and then I just bring that to stage. Who are some of your favorite comedians? It's interesting because some of my favorite comedians are not, uh, quote, uh, household names. And this is why I would encourage everyone to go see live comedy like you did. So you're setting a great example for all those listening. Greg Proops, who used to be on Whose Line Is It Anyway? He's a great improviser, but he's an amazing stand-up comedian. And he has a bunch of specials that you can check out, but seeing him live is outstanding. It's amazing. Uh, He has a podcast called Smartest Man in the World Podcast. I find him super smart, intelligent, insightful. Uh, Ronnie Chang, who is on The Daily Show, he was in Shang-Chi. He was also Crazy Rich Asians. He was at the Masonic in October, and I opened for him there. Super funny. He has like an interesting global perspective. He lived in Malaysia and Singapore. He is one of my favorites. Janine Garofalo, you know her probably from movies and television shows, but her stand-up is outstanding. She's in New York a lot, but she, if she ever comes to town, uh, you have to go see her. Um, she's amazing. Uh, I, I also uh, love Maz Jabrani. Maz is one of the few Iranian-American comedians in the country, and he's from Marin. He uh, lived there as a child, and now he's in L.A. Super, super duper funny, socio-political commentary, talks about his background as well. Tons of comics that maybe aren't Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, Chris Rock level, but they're great comics. So watching live comedy at the comedy club at smaller venues is a great way to see those people. Do they inspire you to bring other facets to what you're doing? It's interesting because inspiration can really come from anywhere. For example, some uh, comedians are inspired by um, their family upbringing, seeing their mom or their grandmother be hilarious. Um, I have a really funny mom. Uh, that inspires me. Uh, for some people, the greats like Richard Pryor, George Carlin, were big influences on them. But the key in stand-up is not to sound like anyone else. Inspiration is great, but you also don't want to sound too much like the people whose comedy you really love. So there's a fine line there. So does that mean you don't have daily practices of calling up inspirational spirits of comedy of any sort? In comedy, just like in a lot of writing, 
you oftentimes can't wait for inspiration to hit you. You have to do it. You just have to sit down and write. Uh, you have to sit down and watch your video or listen to your audio from the show before to listen to what you did. You have to get up and go to a show with only 50 people and make them laugh. I think for creatives, if we're always relying on inspiration, then it becomes a hobby. And you're only doing it when you feel like it, which is not what most people do for their jobs. You can't just go to your job when you feel like it. You've got to put in the reps. That is such a great point. I imagine you have developed reptile skin in response to when no one laughs in the room. Well, I don't know what it's like when no one laughs in the room. That's an experience I'm very unfamiliar with. But um, what you're describing is a couple of things. One is what happens when a joke doesn't really land the way you want it to land, and that's the process. You know, visual artists, for example, can go through multiple canvases or photographers can take 70 pictures before they find the one that's good. It's just that for stand-ups, our rough drafts are in front of a live audience. So we can't go to rehearsal with just the theater troupe and uh, the director says, okay, okay, redo that scene and only a few people see it. Our art form depends on laughter from the audience. And so we have to do it in front of people. We can't just practice in front of a mirror, which is why Zoom shows were fine, but they're not effective in really gauging if you're creating new content. You just have to go up and try things. And if some jokes don't get as big of a laugh as you want, you have to retool that joke or change the words around or edit or come up with a different setup or change the punchline. Um, and if you try it a bunch of times and still nobody's laughing, put it away and come back to it. Uh, this is an art form that depends on your going up and being experimental because you're never going to get to that great laugh unless you try things. A few times you'll come up with something and it's hot out the gate, like you'll make everyone laugh and it'll be amazing. But for most comics, we have to try things out and work it out. Do you ever test with smaller audience first? All the time. I mean, uh, when I opened for Ronnie at the Masonic, it was thousands of people. I am, as stand-up is coming back now, it's sometimes I'm doing a show for less than 50 people. Sometimes it's 200 people. Sometimes if I'm doing a huge show, it's thousands of people. But um, it's great to uh, test it on a warm, friendly crowd. That's the best way to gauge because if the crowd is loud or drunk or not paying attention, you're not really getting a good sense of if the joke is working. If only four people in the audience, then they might feel self-conscious. They're looking around. They don't know if they should laugh. It's kind of like the, the three bears. It can't be too small. It can't be like a huge audience because you're trying to bring your best material. But you want a supportive crowd. And I can't really put a number on it. But, uh, yeah, a small crowd can be just as good as a huge crowd. Um, one of the comics I forgot to mention is Maria Bamford. She is an amazing stand-up, and she talks about mental health and OCD and depression, and she has such a unique take. She filmed one of her comedy specials in front of two people, her mom and her dad, and that is a comedy special. I think it's out on Netflix maybe, but Maria Bamford did it in front of two people, and it was great. It was so fun to watch. 
So it's interesting about the audience aspect. If you have the right audience, you're going to have, get more laughs. And if you don't have the right audience, you're going to get less laughs, right? So it could be audience dependent as well. That's the whole point of stand-up, is that it's a conversation between you and the audience. If there was no audience and no audience feedback, it would just be a monologue. And people can do that on uh, Instagram Live or TikTok or, you know, do it as a theater monologue. But the very special nature of stand-up is that you tell a joke and the audience responds. You are dependent on them to be there and to respond, that's what makes the joke funny. Because if you tell a joke and nobody laughs, then it's not funny. If you tell a joke and everyone laughs and one person goes, that's not funny, they're wrong because 95% of the audience laughed. So it's really dependent on what kind of feedback you're getting from the crowd. But wouldn't you get a better response if you had an intelligent audience versus a pee and poo type of um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I love that, by the way, the pee and poo demographic. I once had to make some kindergartners laugh at a low resource school. And these were either, I think they were kindergartners or first graders. And the sad thing is one of them got held back. One of them, their parents were working like two jobs. Another kid, the television was the babysitter while the mom worked in fast food. I mean, these kids really didn't have a lot of resources. And I had to make them laugh. And Honestly, pee and poo jokes are very popular among that demographic, kindergartners and first grade. But it gave me a lot of joy to make them laugh because they needed laughter. And by the end of my session with them, one of the kids was like, Miss Daya, I want to tell you I love you. And so sometimes it doesn't matter if you have these brilliant jokes written in advance. The job is to make the people in front of you laugh. And I'm not saying to pander, but you have to find a way to make them laugh. They're the, they're the audience. So there's a degree of this is your job and this is what you have to do. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like a gourmet chef who's like, I'm only serving snails and butter. And everyone's like, I came here for the pizza. You're going to go out of business if that's all you serve. Like some people want diversity on the menu. So you have to figure out how to entertain the people in front of you because it's entertainment. It is about diversity and being able to perform at all various levels. Mm-hmm. What about improvising at you know, on the spot when your joke bombs? Again, bombing, I have, I have no idea what that's like. That must be so difficult <laughs> for those comics who go through it. Uh, I, I think that all comics experience not getting the response they want on stage. And sometimes it could be an awful audience that's, you know, for ex- amongst comics, it's known that St. Patrick's Day, July 4th, some of these drinking holidays are terrible times to go and perform because the audience isn't paying attention. They're at a bar or whatever because it's an alcohol delivery mechanism. So, one, if a joke isn't working in that kind of environment, a long time ago Jerry Seinfeld said, you know, never to blame the audience, that it's always your fault. I think to some extent he's right, but I think you can blame the audience a little bit because if they're there to drink and they don't want to pay attention to the show, well, just get out of there, do a few jokes, end early, go home, and then try it out on another audience. But 
half the time they're so blitzed out of their mind, they, they're not going to remember the comic on stage. So it's not really embarrassing for you. But if you're trying new material and you're getting a lukewarm response, uh, you, you have to record yourself and listen to it afterwards and be like, did I step on a laugh before? Did I, did I pause too long? Uh, did I mumble some words? Did they not understand the setup? Did I not pause here before the punchline? So you have to really troubleshoot because uh, kind of, and like any artistic pursuit, like if a writer gets something back from their editor and they have given a bunch of comments, then you have to be responsive. So in the case of stand-up, your editors are the live audience. So you have to go back and hear what you did. And sometimes the audience is wrong. It's not your night. It's not they're there because they got free tickets. They don't you know, care about what's happening. So you just go and try that joke another time. And then if you're consistently not getting a laugh because of this one joke, then maybe it's time to scrap it and try something else. But sometimes... I'll say to people, don't throw it away. Keep it in your drafts folder and come back to it a year or two later, and maybe you're more confident on stage or the collective political climate has changed and you can do that joke. Or people think of of you differently because, for example, March 31st was Trans Day of Visibility. There are a lot more transgender comics now than there were 10 years ago, and they should be getting a bigger and better response for for audiences hearing their stories and being vocal about what's funny to them. 10, 15 years ago, maybe there were too few of those comics or the audiences weren't ready or they had some bias. And now audiences are more ready or more aware. And so those comics should definitely get back up on stage and try again. So it sounds like you just have to be really cue in on the context and timing and be open to trying it later and just you just don't know for sure till you tweak everything possible. For some newer comics, uh, they keep trying the same things over and over again and they don't know how to make it better. So part of the learning curve for any artist is I think, you know, Ira Glass talks about this. In the beginning, you're not going to make good art. It's going to be mediocre or bad or terrible. And part of being an artist is knowing what improvement looks like, knowing what draft two or draft three of the joke is, and if you're moving in the right direction. Um, for some people, they just don't know, and then they say, stay stuck, and they never get funnier. So you have to also be self-reflective. You have to watch a lot of good comics to, to know what the craft is, because people have been doing this for a long time. I mean, there's people were doing stand-up in the Catskills in early 1900s, or back in the day. Stand-up as we know it really evolved because of Carlin and Pryor and those folks, but stand-up of some sort has been happening for a long time. So the art form is evolving, and it's so uniquely uh, American and fascinating that way that one of the other ways to get better and learn is to just see other people who are doing great things and watch what they do and how the audience is. But sometimes that's a false flag because famous people, as soon as they go up on stage, they'll get a standing ovation because they're like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite famous comic, amazing, and the audience is willing to laugh at everything they say. So if you have fame on you, the audience will laugh at whatever because they, they, they're conditioned to respond to fame. So if you're not famous 
You have to work harder. And sometimes, that's why I say go see local live comedy. Sometimes the non-famous people are funnier because they have to work harder because they don't have the veneer of fame on them. All right. Everyone heard it. Go to your local comedy club. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the plug. (laughs) Okay. We all need more laughter right now. So definitely that's a place to go. What would you suggest, though, in how we can flex our own funny bone more? Because most people tend to memorize jokes, right? Is there a better way that people can learn to be funny? You know, it's uh, like like I said before, I hate to be a comedy snob. I mean, there's thank you so much, by the way, for saying that I do intelligent comedy that's sociopolitical. That's the kind of stuff I want to bring on stage. But honestly, I still watch... Cheech and Chong movies, because I think they are hilarious. They are stoners. They fall down. They make some of these kind of low-hanging fruit jokes. A lot of different things make me laugh. Um, Those kindergartners that were telling me, like, really silly puns, they make me laugh. Um, My dad, who tells me dad jokes, those make me laugh, too. So I think there's uh, a place for very accessible comedy. Like, if you're making people laugh and it's, you know, through joy and it's through the right intention, uh, people should just laugh. They shouldn't, like, hold the laughter in and be like, oh, I only laugh at jokes with multi-syllabic words. I mean, if you're going through life like that, you're not going to enjoy. So it's okay to laugh at, like, a dumb video of a rooster riding on a puppy. I think that's totally fine. And I think that that's why people watch Netflix specials. That's why people watch sitcoms. That's why people go to see live comedy events, because it's like, uh, you know, being a chef, we're training for this. So we can't expect people at home to make uh, rice aroni taste as good as a Michelin star restaurant that's making pasta, because you're home balancing a job and child care and uh, exercise and paying your bills. And you can't be expected to be funny at the level of a professional comedian. So I say that one way is to laugh together. If uh, if you want to go and see someone make you laugh, that's a great endorphin experience. And most of the time when people leave, they continue talking about the comedians. And they're like, what did you think about that? Yeah, that was funny. I remember when this happened. So it's also a shared experience, kind of like going to the movie theater or something else, that it's great to do as a collective. So that's one way I think people can have more laughter is to go see the people who do this really well. And in your own daily life, it's totally okay to laugh at dumb stuff or, like you said, manufactured jokes. (laughs) As you pointed out, laughter does connect people. And we do need to connect more. I think people have been feeling very isolated. And it's also a larger societal problem now that's been pointed out by the Surgeon General. So if you were the chief of people happiness, how would you solve this current sense of isolation? First of all, I love that title. Uh, I don't know if someone has that as their job description, but please hire me. I want to be, what, what did you call it, chief happiness officer? <laughs> yes, our chief of ha- people happiness. People happiness. That's brilliant. I, I want some corporation or st- well-funded startup. VCs, please give these startups money so they can hire this person, and that person can be me, because I would love to do that. It's hard, because... 
I recorded a comedy special in October, and that was when the Delta surge was petering out, and this is right before the Omicron surge started happening. And even then, I heard from people saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think I can come. I'm just not feeling confident enough, or I have, uh, a, you know, an autoimmune disease, or I have asthma. Or, and I said, you know, it's totally fine. There's no pressure. This is a scary time. Stay at home. Take care of your mental and physical health. For some people, being not in crowds is their way of taking care of themselves. But as you pointed out, isolation can be a problem, especially if you're doing all your social contact on Zoom or on the phone. There's something about the in-person and live where we can read body language. And, And I think that the the mask wearing might continue for some people too and it's important not to shame those people and make them feel bad because they're taking care of their health so one way to kind of minimize i don't know if we can stop is is not making people feel like they're bad or different because of the choices that they're making to to maintain their own health uh now i don't condone all this weird stuff that's happening, people confronting flight attendants or yelling at their nurses and doctors. Don't do that. Be nice to people. I'm saying your choice to be at home or to keep yourself safe, that type of thing is okay. But I also think, um, you know, people are having mental health challenges. So road rage is increasing. And part of that is we've kind of forgotten how to connect with people, to to have conversation, to give people hugs without having that moment of panic. Like, does the CDC say I can give a hug? Do I have to wear masks on my fingertips before doing it? I mean, there's all this anxiety. So uh, I do think that I am biased towards people gathering and being in public together and going to events. That's because, you know, I'm vaccinated and boosted and I can do these things. But if people are not yet ready we have to just be okay with that. And I also think it's an interesting time because we've seen through the pandemic the murder of George Floyd, Asian hate happening. And I think those things oftentimes occur because biases and prejudice and hatred that people have. And when they're isolated and getting wrong information, they take it out on other groups and they tend to not have empathy. So one way is in our media, I would love to see more representations of women, more representation of people of color, of LGBTQ folks, as I mentioned earlier, because that helps not only marginalized groups feel less isolated, it also helps people to see people on television and have a more full picture rather than what they're reading in some you know, QAnon, you know, rabbit hole, and then they make up their mind about certain groups or people, and that sparks violence and animosity, and that's a kind of isolation, too. This is the kind of depth I'm talking about in your content. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't make it funny. That's that's a lot of heavy stuff to lay on you. That's, that's a, I'm not doing my job with you. I'm not being funny. But this is from the heart. I, I meant all of that. Please remind us how we can see your shows and access your album. 
Thank you for that. Um, I recorded an album in October. It's, it came out February 25th. It debuted number two on iTunes. It's called Diatribe, because a diatribe is a lecture, uh, an oration. Uh, sometimes it's a little mean. Sometimes it's, it's funny. It's sarcastic. And my name is spelled with an H, so it's D-H-A-Y-A-T-R-I-B-E. You can go to Diatribe, the website, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Pandora, Bandcamp, there's vinyl. You can order vinyl if you go to the uh, Diatribe website. You can also look at my calendar at Twitter, uh, at Dialive on Twitter. Dialive is my website. And, you know, you can, there's even a Zoom show that's coming up. So if you're not in California, you can see me via Zoom. Well, I look forward to seeing more of your shows. And thank you for joining me and sharing your experiences, Diane. Thank you. Free tickets for you anytime. You're such a supporter. <laughs> 